Hebrews chapter 11. Before we begin, uh, would you join me in prayer one more time? Our Heavenly Father and gracious God, we come to you needy, and we pray that you would meet us through the preaching of your word, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. By your Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to behold Christ, your Son, to grasp Him in faith, and to live in obedience to His commands. It's in His name we pray. Amen. The year was 1839. Two men from the London Missionary Society, John Williams and James Harris, uh, set sail for what was then known as the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, these are Polynesian islands about 1,800 kilometers east of Australia. Uh, there had been no Christian presence there. The island was filled with uh, tribes, and they went there to bring the gospel to these people. Within minutes of arriving on one of these islands, Williams and Harris were put to death, and then they were cannibalized by the cannibalistic tribes that lived on these islands. Less than 20 years later, another man named John Patton felt compelled to go to the New Hebrides Islands. But the memory of these deaths was still fresh. And it was a risky proposition. Uh, Patton was actually discouraged from going from many in his church. In fact, at one meeting, an older gentleman named Mr. Dixon uh, got up and said to him, you should not go. You will be eaten by cannibals. And John Patton responded with these words. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die, serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And then Patton set sail. What is it that motivates that kind of risk? Risky, costly obedience to the commands of Christ. Risky, costly living and acts of service and honor to our Lord Jesus. All of us generally by nature are averse to risk, aren't we? Especially as expats in a comfortable country like the UAE, we are averse to risk. We try to avoid anything risky, anything that threatens our safety or our comfort. We view some acts like this as perhaps over the top, maybe not for me, or surely God isn't calling me to do that. What is it that motivates God's people to live with such courage at the risk of loss, the risk of ridicule, even the risk of death? You see, brothers and sisters, biblically speaking, risk is right for the cause of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about 
some kind of foolish, foolhardy or unlawful risk where you do something foolish and unlawful and then say, God led me to do this or that. That's not what I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about staking it all for the cause of Christ, for His commands, for our identification with Jesus. What is it that motivates that? And the answer, the author of Hebrews would say, is faith. It's being gripped by a reality that exists beyond this world and then being motivated to live for this real heavenly reward. And then we can obey even when it costs us dearly or puts us in a risky and difficult position. We're continuing this morning through Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter, where the author is taking us through the Old Testament, showing us how faith shaped the lives of God's people in the past, how their lives gave evidence of the unseen reality of God and His promises. And, and we've seen this again and again. Faith proves in the present the reality of the future. It provides evidence of things that we cannot see. In other words, your faith-based actions of obedience prove the reality that you're living for. And this morning, the author of Hebrews shows us how that worked in the life of Moses, in the exodus from Egypt and the entry of God's people into the promised land. And my hope is as we look at this passage this morning that our hearts, your hearts, would grow in courage for costly, risky obedience to the Lord because of our confidence in His power, in His presence, in His promises. And as we look at the text here, you'll see there are seven faith-motivated motiv actions of obedience in our text. Okay, They all begin with the phrase, by faith. So as we, as we go through the text, you'll see the phrase, by faith, is repeated seven times. All right, uh, The first five of those is in the life of Moses. Okay, And then the next two are after Moses, as uh, the people of Israel entered the promised land. So we'll look at these faith-based actions under three heads. Right, First, the life of Moses. There's five of them. Uh, and then the entry into the promised land, and then the life of Rahab. That's, that's the structure for the outline. Let's begin in verse 23 uh, with our first heading here, faith-based risky obedience in Moses' life. We'll spend most of our time in the life of Moses and then quickly look at the other two. Faith-based risky obedience in Moses' life. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So 
over there, we see the phrase, by faith, appear five times. Verse 23, verse 24, verse 27, verse 28, and verse 29. We're looking at five acts of faith, five acts of risky obedience in the life of Moses. And it begins not with Moses' actions, but with the actions of his parents there in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Around the time Moses was born, the Israelites were living in slavery in Egypt. And they were having, God was blessing them with a number of children as his people. And the king, Pharaoh, felt threatened by this. The number of these Hebrew slaves is increasing. What if they rise up and rebel against us? What are we going to do? And so he passed this edict that all of the male children, infants, would be slaughtered in the land. And around this time, Moses' parents were expecting a child. They had this child. And they choose to defy Pharaoh. Two ordinary Hebrew slaves living in a foreign land defy the most powerful man on earth at the time, the king himself and his edict. They kept Moses hidden for three months. They did not give him up to be slaughtered. They did not fear the king's edict. They were not afraid, the text says. You see, they were not afraid of this earthly king because they feared someone greater than him. They feared a greater king. They trusted in an unseen king who rules above every earthly king, including Pharaoh. They feared the Lord rather than fearing man, no matter how powerful that man. And, and the text says they did so because they saw that the child was beautiful. Uh, I don't think, and most interpretations would argue, this is not because they saw that this is a beautiful baby, right? Everybody thinks babies are beautiful. All babies are beautiful, right? Uh, they were convinced somehow there was some sort of aura about this child. They were convinced by faith that God had plans for their baby boy, that this child was marked out by God for a purpose. And then, of course, we see God's providence in the story, even as they obeyed by faith. Uh, the, after three months, she finds out she can't hide him any longer. His mother, Yochebed, puts uh, baby Moses in a basket, and then uh, they leave that basket by the bank of the Nile. His sister is watching to see what happens. And then in the providence of God, the daughter of Pharaoh herself finds the baby, decides to adopt the baby, and raise him as her own son. And then the sister says, can I find a Hebrew nurse to nurse this child for you? And she goes and gets mom. And so Moses is nursed and raised by his mom, raised as the daughter of Pharaoh, as kind of the adopted grandson of the most powerful man on earth. And then as Moses grows up, what does he choose? How does he live? Are the actions of his parents repeated in his life? That's what we see. We see his next act 
of risky obedience in verses 24 and following. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses grows up and he refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's amazing. And we ought not to think of that lightly. I mean, imagine an expat child born in this nation and then the daughter of the king of this nation, of this state, decides to adopt him and raises him. And then he gets, you know, this lofty title as he's grown up, His Excellency. And he's living as part of the royal family, adopted grandson to the king. And then says, no, I trust in Christ. I'm going to renounce all this. That's not my identity. Instead, I'm going to go and be baptized and become a member of the local church called ECC over there. Imagine that. That's kind of like what Moses did. And living as part of the royal family in one of the most opulent and powerful nations on earth, he could get whatever he wanted. Right? It says that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Imagine that. He could get any pleasure that he wanted, whether it was money, women, food, whatever Moses wanted, he could get. At the snap of a finger, it was his. We only need to read accounts of the ancient world to see the kind of opulence in which they lived. But he recognized that the pleasures of sin in Egypt's courts were fleeting. There's a great book by uh, a man named Thomas Brooks that was written several hundred years ago. And it was, it was called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And uh, in this book, he talks about how sin works. And the first uh, device that he presents that sin uses is that it presents the bait and hides the hook. Sin is a fleeting pleasure. It promises you something sweet, and it might be sweet for a little while, but then it ends up with something really bitter. It causes you to trade that which is lasting and eternal for that which is fleeting and temporal. That's why Adam and Eve traded paradise with God for one little fruit. Esau traded his birthright, his inheritance for a bowl of stew. And we often trade our fellowship with God for fleeting, temporary pleasure. Sin offers fleeting pleasure. Egypt, this world, can provide earthly treasure. But faith calls us to live for a greater heavenly treasure and to risk it all and to say no to this world and to sin for that heavenly reward. What did Moses choose? Well, it tells us there. 
he chose, verse 25, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses chose to be mistreated with God's people. He chose to identify with Christ. Do you see there those two contrasts in the text in verses 25 and 26? Mistreatment with God's people rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. The reproach of Christ rather than the treasures of Egypt. And the author is telling us something. Identifying with the people of God in suffering means you're identifying with Christ. Being mistreated with the people of God is embracing the reproach of Christ. Because you see, God's people are always a suffering people. We are a suffering people on this earth. We are a people of affliction and reproach on this earth because we have identified ourselves with a suffering savior, with one who was reproached and forsaken and not esteemed among men. What is it that enables us to embrace the reproach of Christ, to embrace being mistreated and identifying with Jesus and his family? What is it that motivated Moses? Look at verse 26 at the end there, it it tells you clearly. He was looking for, that means because, he did this because, he was looking to the reward. Moses didn't follow the logic of this world, the logic of Egypt, the logic of Abu Dhabi, which basically says, buy now, pay later. Pleasure now, payment later. Instead, he followed the logic of Scripture, which says, reproach now, reproach now, reward later. Friends, the wages of sin is death. That's the reward that sin gives us, death. But faith points us to a reward that we receive in a heavenly city filled with God's glory that God has prepared for those who love him. That's what Moses saw, looked forward to, and was gripped by, and that's what shaped his choices. And the question for us this morning is, what about you? Do you choose affliction over the fleeting pleasures of sin? Does your Christian faith show up when you're faced with those choices? At your workplace, maybe you have been asked to compromise. Let's adjust that receipt. Let's adjust this spreadsheet a little bit. You know, small things, fudge these numbers. No one will know. It's okay. Now, I know that you're a Christian and you have these principles, but it's no big deal. How do you respond? Or with your family members, maybe who are not in Christ, who shame you for your faith in Christ? Are you tempted to maybe water it down a little bit, back off, do religious things that they do, compromise under the pressure? Some of you maybe I know are under pressure to marry a non-Christian, to appease your family. With your friends, I want to talk to the teenagers, kids even, With your friends, is your Christian faith real? When you're going to face exclusion or be marginalized or pushed out of those circles or 
have to say no to certain things that they're doing because you can't do those things? Do you choose Christ and his reproach over the treasures of this world? That's what Moses' faith looked like. And the author is calling us to have such faith. Then we see the next act of faith in Moses' life in verse 27. And here you see the faith and confidence of his parents repeated in his own life. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Uh, now Moses left Egypt twice. If you remember the story from Exodus, one time he was afraid of the king and he ran away into the wilderness. I don't think this is talking about that time. It's talking about later in his life as he encountered God himself at the burning bush and met with the Lord God Almighty and the Lord gave him a commission to go into Egypt and stand in defiance of the king and bring out the people of Israel to worship and to know God. And Moses went and did that again. Standing before the most powerful man on earth at that time. Just like his parents didn't fear the king, Moses was not afraid of the king. Why was he not afraid? Because he saw someone invisible. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He knew that Pharaoh was angry. He knew that Pharaoh could chop off his head. But his eyes of faith were fixed on a greater king seated on his throne. Moses did not fear the most powerful man on earth because he saw the all-powerful God who rules from heaven. He was confident that God was with him, that God was with the people of Israel, and they left. They walked out of Egypt in risky obedience to God's commands. Moses' actions, his obedience, give evidence of the existence and the presence of the one true God. And again, the author presses the question for us, how about you? Does your life testify to the existence of the God that you believe? Now, sometimes our faith is small and weak. And it's not really the strength of our faith or the intensity of our faith that matters. It's whether our actions follow from our faith and the reality that we have depended upon. That's actually what you see in the next verse, verse 28. Here we see a very significant event in Israel's life in this whole Exodus drama that we heard read earlier from Exodus 12. It says, by faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This seemed like some kind of a strange ritual. God has poured out all these plagues on Egypt. They've seen the power of God. Now there's this final plague that's coming. And God says that he is going to pass through the land as the destroyer. The angel of death is going to go through the land and every firstborn in every Egyptian home will die. But the Israelites have a substitutionary sacrifice that they make. They will slay this lamb, the Passover lamb, and apply 
its blood on their doors, on the doorpost and the lintels. And they will eat this Passover meal with everything packed and their sandals strapped and ready to go. It's kind of like the last meal you get in the airport, right? The transit lounge right before you fly in a hurry, fast food. And they're trusting that God will spare their firstborn. God will preserve us through this judgment. And I love how D.A. Carson illustrates this. He, he, he talks about, he tells us how faith really works, right? In, in the Passover, he tells us the story of two Jews. And I'm going to retell the story. Uh, two Jews, imagine their names. Let's give them some Jewish, Jewish names, right? Obed and Jobed, all right? So Obed and Jobed, the Passover night, right? The, 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 the evening, they're getting ready for this Passover. And, and, you know, Jobed says to Obed, like, hey, I'm feeling pretty nervous about this. You know, we've, we've seen all of these judgments happen. And it, these are some crazy times. The whole land was completely pitch black a few days ago for the Egyptians. And, and now the angel of death, I mean, that sounds crazy. The angel of death is going to go through and he's going to kill every firstborn. I'm really nervous about this. I only have one son. And Obed says, huh, I trust in God's promises. Didn't you hear God's command through his servant Moses that he gave us to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintels? Have you done that? I've done that. And aren't you packed and ready to go and going to eat the Passover lamb? Trust in the word of God, Jobed. And he says, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that command. I've done that. You know, I, I slaughtered the lamb. I put the blood on the doorpost and the lintels. We're going to eat. Everything is packed. But still, it's, it's frightening. I'm, I'm kind of scared. I mean, Obed, you have three sons. I only have one son, my beloved Jojo. And, and, and I'm worried. And I mean, the rivers turned to blood some time ago. There was all of these flies. And Obed says, no fear. God's word rules the day. And then nightfall. And the angel of death passes through the land slaying every firstborn. When you think of Obed and Jobed, which of their sons do you think lived? And the answer is, they both lived. They both lived. Because it's not the intensity of your belief that counts, it's the reality that you have believed in. And we are saved from judgment, not by the strength of our faith, but by the object of our faith. The promises of God. What have you trusted in? Does it shape how you live? Even with that weak faith, that wavering faith, are you able to stake your life on what God's word says and your actions follow? You see, this points us forward, the day of Passover points us forward to a greater day of destruction that's coming, where one day God will judge all of the world, and all human beings will stand before Him for our sin. And He has told us in His Word how to be saved on that day, because the blood of the Passover lamb points forward to a greater substitutionary sacrifice 
the blood of God's own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for all who repent and believe and trust in Him. Have you trusted in His blood? Is that the reality that you're banking your life upon? And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I want to call you, trust in Him today. Trust in Him today and you will be saved from the judgment of God for your sin. It's not the intensity of our faith that saves us. It's the reality that we have believed in that enables us to live in obedience in the present. Well, that moves us then to the final act of faith in Moses' life that we see in this passage. And here we see the whole people of Israel following in his footsteps of faith. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So Moses and the people of Israel exit Egypt, defying the king. The Pharaoh says, go. And they go. And they're wandering, traveling through the wilderness, following this pillar of cloud and fire. And then they come to the banks of this big sea, the Red Sea. And Pharaoh, in the meantime, has changed his mind and hardened his heart once more. And out he comes with all of his army, with all of his chariots, chasing after the Israelites. And here are these kind of shepherd people, Hebrew slaves, standing between a great sea and a mighty army advancing on them, and they're trembling with fear. If you read Exodus 14, they begin to completely doubt, why have you brought us out here to die, Moses? What's going on? And Moses' faith elevates the entire nation. From Exodus 14, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I know you see these Egyptians, but I want you to wait and see the salvation of God. And then following the faith of Moses, they begin to walk and the sea parts. God himself blows the sea apart. They walk through on dry land, not a drop of water on them. And then that same sea comes down and swallows up the entire army of Egypt of the most powerful nation on earth. As one person said, one man's faith can be so authentic and effectual that it can elevate a whole people and secure their deliverance. Vibrant, authentic faith can elevate our families our churches, and our communities. So a number of questions. Will our faith in the unseen God who is with us, who fights for us, who promises us heavenly reward, move us to risky obedience to His Word, even when it seems counterintuitive? Will it move us to cry out to Him as His people, in prayer together to advance his gospel and his kingdom through us? Will our faith in the unseen reality of who our God is and the glory of his promises move us to share the gospel with those around us, to be bold, confident, 
courageous in our witness and testimony of Christ. Move us to live with the faith that is real and public and visible in this land. Real faith takes risks. Trusting in the presence and promises and power of God and says, I'm going to bank everything on that. Even if I'm struggling. Risky obedience. So we've seen risky obedience in the life of Moses. And then the author gives us couple more examples of faith-based risky obedience. Next we see faith-based risky obedience in Israel's conquest. In Israel's conquest. That's in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So you might or might not be familiar with the story. This is now uh, from the next phase of uh, Israel's life. The author skips over the wandering in the wilderness where they rebelled against God and many of them fell. He already talked about that in Hebrews 3 and warned us not to be like that generation. This is a new generation of the people of Israel under Joshua, Moses' successor. They're going into the promised land and these are fortified cities. And Jericho is one of the most fortified cities in the ancient world. It was very hard to mount any kind of an assault on this city, but God commanded them. And the story, we see it in Joshua chapter 6. Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. How were they going to breach these walls? Well, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And then you see these really, really strange commands. All right, Strangest, craziest military strategy in the history of warfare. Ancient and modern, I guarantee Listen to this. God tells them, this, this, is, this is your strategy, all right, to wage war on this fortified city. This, this is what you do. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. So they're going to march around the city. Thus you shall do for six days. So each day, get up, get ready, and march around the city. You do that for six days. Who's, who's leading this march? Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. So seven priests at the front, and they're marching around the city. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. So they march around the city seven times on the seventh day. And after that, what happens? Well, the priests shall blow the trumpets. And then what happens? When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then what are you going to do? Attack. No, don't attack. All the people shall shout with a great shout. Shout loud. I don't know what they shouted. Hallelujah! That's the military strategy. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Crazy weak, what seems foolish, and yet it's the command of God. And we trust that he shall use that foolish strategy to glorify himself and to deliver his people. As one person said, faith takes action in response to God's word even when visible circumstances seem foolish and his promises impossible. And that reminds us, doesn't it, of what we have believed in, what we have trusted in. 
1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, the cross, believing in a crucified Savior, saying that the Son of God was put to death, naked and ashamed and crucified for our sins, in this world, in this context, seems weak. It seems foolish. It seems crazy and insane. A crucified Son of God, raised from the dead, that's what you believe in? Yes, it is. It's our faith in what seems foolish and impossible that shapes our lives and drives our obedience in all of life. And we have believed and come to have seen in our lives that the cross is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And there is salvation in no one else but in Christ and Him crucified. And are we willing to trust in what seems like the foolish promises of God to live a life in risky obedience to His commands. In doing so, we would be much like the last person that we see in today's text. And this one is a surprising character, actually. There's a woman named Rahab. She's our last example of faith-based risky obedience this morning. We saw this faith-based risk in Moses' life, in Israel's conquest, and now we see faith-based, risky obedience in Rahab's actions. Verse 31, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So this is telling us of what happened right before the conquest of Jericho. This is from chapter 2 of the book of Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men, so he sends these spies to spy out the city, secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Now, a lot of people get here into the ethics of Rahab's action. Well, she lied. How can you do that? I would say this is kind of subterfuge. This is an act of war, and she is using subterfuge, which is, in the context of war, a particular strategy uh, not to give your opponents the advantage. She has switched sides from Jericho to the people of Israel. And then her faith is both active and risky. Because if she was found out, that was the end for her. She would be put to death and her whole family, probably in the most gruesome fashion. She's one of the lowest people in society. But by faith, she joins herself to the people of Israel, trusting in their God. And so she was not destroyed. This is a pagan Gentile woman outside of God's covenant people. This is a prostitute. 
a woman who lives a very sinful, shameful life. And yet she is recorded as having obeyed God. Did you notice what the text says? She did not perish, verse 31, she did not perish with those who were disobedient. She obeyed. Her faith led her to obey. She risked her safety, her family's safety at the hands of human powers, but she was saved from destruction because she trusted in God's divine power, in the reality of His power, His promises. She says, if you go back and read Joshua, she says to these men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That's faith. She hasn't seen it happen yet, but she believes it. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And notice her testimony of faith here at the end. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And so faith then moves Rahab to obedience. The Apostle Paul in Romans talks about bringing about the obedience of faith among the nations for the sake of the name of Christ. That's what the gospel does. You see, trusting God is itself obedience. And then when we trust in Him, in His presence, power, and promises, it results in obedience in our lives. Faith brings about obedience. Question again is, have you trusted in His presence, in His power, in his promises, that the Lord, our God, he is God. And then if you know the rest of the story with Rahab, just like the Israelites placed blood on their doorposts and lintels, and they were spared from the judgment that came, Rahab is given this instruction to tie a scarlet cord in the frame of her window. And she ties that cord and just like the Lord saw the blood of the Passover lamb and passed over the Israelites, sparing them, the people of Israel, as they're advancing into the city, they see this cord, and Rahab is spared. And by faith, she becomes one of the people of Israel. And from her line comes the Lord Jesus Christ. The Israelites had the blood of the Passover lamb, Rahab had this scarlet cord. For us today, it's the blood of the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the mark of His cross over our lives that will deliver us from judgment to come. And so may the power of the cross and the reality of God's promises demonstrated to us in the gospel, stir our hearts to an obedience that says, I can stake my life on this. You see, the people to whom the author was preaching in Hebrews, we've talked about the context. They were in a risky environment. Gathering with the church, publicly identifying with, the, uh, with Christ as a Christian could mean losing everything, even losing their life. And the author of Hebrews tells them, risk is right for Christ. Because God's presence, His power, His promises are real. John Patton knew this. That's why he went. And as he 
set sail for the New Hebrides Island with the risk of being cannibalized, he said this, he said, had it not been for the assurance that in every path of duty he would carry me through or dispose of me therein for his glory, I could never have undertaken either journey. He trusted in God's presence. They landed on one of the islands called Tana in November 1858. Within four months, the family was afflicted with sickness, him and his wife Mary and his young son Peter. And his wife Mary and his son Peter died. He spent four years on that island, fruitless, constantly hunted by cannibals, constantly under the threat of dying, hurricanes often sweeping through, again and again afflicted with the same sickness and his wife. After four years, he went back home and was told that he wasn't courageous enough. Why did you come back? He remarried, went back again to another island, Aniwa, in the same region. Lost another child. Often him and his second wife were at the door of death with fevers and afflictions and suffering. He was constantly attacked by the natives, by cannibals. One time he is, you know, in a tree for 24 hours as he sees tribesmen hunting him below. And he says this, Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made upon me. And yet with my trembling hand clasped, in the hand that was once nailed on Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul, Pat entrusted in God's power. And he labored on for decades. And you know what happened at the end of his life? The entire island of Aniva had turned to Christ. He trusted in God's promises. He says, I claimed Aniva for Jesus and by the grace of God, Aniva now worships at the Savior's feet, the entire island praising our risen Lord. And one in six ordained pastors from the island were missionaries of the cross going to other islands, other tribes, proclaiming Jesus. Patton says this at the end of his life. Whatever trials have befallen me in my earthly pilgrimage, I have never had the trial of doubting that perhaps Jesus might have made some mistake. No. My blessed Lord Jesus makes no mistakes. When we see all his meaning, we shall then understand what now we can only trustfully believe by faith that all is well, best for us, best for the cause most dear to us, best for the good of others and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our faith in your promises would lead and drive us, that our trust in your power would cause us to stake it all on the name of Jesus and live in costly, risky obedience to your commands. In Jesus' name. Amen.